Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Pop Culture. Tyson Popplestone here. Hope you're all doing really well. Hope your week's treating you well. I'm uh, excited to introduce to you today a bloke by the name of Mark Dobson. I met this guy back in 2005 when I was getting ready for a year 12, I think it was the start of the year preparation course. And they said that they were having a motivational speaker. I was always apprehensive about these guys because it's all good and well to go in, motivate someone for 10 minutes and then say, hey, see you next year. But this guy was different. He came in and... I wouldn't call him a motivational speaker at all. He was a, he's a performance coach. This guy not only inspires you, but he equips you with practical tools to be able to take steps towards whatever it is that you're trying to achieve. And we've seen him work with the likes of Grant Hackett, uh, one of the greatest swimmers the world's ever seen, 1,500-meter swimmer. He's worked with businessmen and uh, memory athletes, and he's worked with comedians. He's worked with a whole range of people. And I wanted to pick his brain about what it is that, uh, you know, what are some of the, the common traits of a successful person? More than that, we talk about creative process. We talk about parenting. He's got a couple of kids around the same age as mine. It was a really good, a really good honest conversation. It's one of the things I love about Dobbo is uh, you never have to guess what he's thinking. He'll always tell you, and it's a, it's a trait I respect. So, hey, I hope you enjoy it. If you do enjoy it, hey, chuck us a little review on, uh, on, on Apple Podcasts wherever it is that you listen to them. It'd be greatly appreciated. But for now, enjoy this conversation with myself and performance coach, Mark Dobson. What are you going to tell us, tough guys? My usual, zero, nothing. Awesome, man. It was good to see you again. I was uh, I was just about to say to you before I hit record that I feel as though uh, well, it was 17 years ago that I first met you, which was at the, the high school camp, which for anyone who's uh, heard any of my podcast interviews, especially with you, we'd, we'd already know. But I was saying I, I pre-recorded a little introduction to this one because I, I knew roughly what I wanted to talk about with you. And, and one of the things I said was when you came to the high school for the first time, I'd I'd seen some of the so-called motivational speakers in the past and we'd had a couple of attempts at people coming into the school. So even though I was uh, semi-open to the idea, I was also semi-cautious because it seems to be a, an industry with a lot of wankers in there if you're not careful. Yeah, and uh, I was, I'm delighted to say that you completely broke the stereotype that I had in my mind that day. And it's, uh, it's funny. It's funny now, 17 years later, sitting here with you on a podcast because uh, the impact you made that day was was so big so it's a uh, I, I tell you it's weird when you start layering up a couple of decades worth of that work you've you've been in the scene now for a uh, yeah. a very long time i'm guessing not so much in the high school scene now anymore though no not at all but i it what is interesting is during that period when i was working in schools i was so dedicated like i was so passionate and uh i just wanted to help what never crossed my mind is what would might happen 15 or 20 years later and i still get I have people like you reaching out and other people writing me letters and bumping into me in the street. Just the other day, actually, my mate, he's got a Tesla and it, it had broken. And so he said, look, can you, can we have lunch while I wait for my car to get fixed? So I go see him and then he's getting all worked up because there's Tesla's messing him around. And uh, I'm like, going, and he's a few pings here, but, and Tesla's messing him around, but he's anyway. So he says, I'm going to, I'm going to have to say to these guys, it's ridiculous. So we go in and, we walk in the door to pick up the car and this guy comes out and he looks a bit familiar and he's just staring at me. And out of the blue, he just says, Dobbo. Oh my God, you're Dobbo. <laughs> and so he goes, oh my God, I was on your program when I was a kid. And now Ryan just rolls his eyes thinking, well, I can't have a go at this guy now. Like, <laughs> And this stuff still happens all the time. It's amazing. 
Man, well, it's funny. It's no surprise to me because I remember just the relief on every year 12 back in 2005 when they realised you just weren't a wanker. You came in, you had some practical tools. You weren't going to take bullshit. They were either do the course seriously or do the program seriously or, you know, don't bother. It's no sweat off. It's no sweat off your back to, yeah. you know, to, to have one person less who's not interested in the in the scene. One thing, one thing I've never spoken to you about, one thing I'm curious to find out because you're just saying that you're, um, you know, you're just motivated and inspired and just keen to help as many young people as you could back in those days was it's interesting to speak to people like you and just find out what it was that got them into a scene like this. Cause for me, I sort of followed your footsteps for a, a couple of years and I can talk about why I sort of moved away a little bit if you're, if you're interested. But uh, one of the things that I found personally was it was a message that I probably needed to hear more than anyone that I spoke to. Like the things that I was constantly speaking about in schools were um, just a constant reminder to me. And I think, I, I was probably born and raised in, a, in an environment where, you know, I probably went towards a default of anxiety just too quickly in unnecessary moments when I was younger. And I think as a result, I kind of needed these tools just to, you know, try and get the most out of myself. And as a keen distance runner, I was really curious to find out about the mental advantages to, to some of the things that, you know, the, the mental teachings would offer. But I never really heard about your introduction to it. Like what was the, uh, what was the fuel to get you in a scene like this? Well, I was, uh, I lived in, you know, the street I lived in next door, there was a, a convent. I lived next door to a bunch of nuns. And next door to that, there was a church. And next door to that was the primary school. And we were heavily involved in the church. Mum and dad were always running the church fates and similar. And everybody kind of knew the, the school, the church, the convent and the Dobson house because we were so involved. And as time went on, uh, they started a youth club and I, um, I attended the youth club and eventually someone said, look, have you thought about running it? And I was probably only about 14 or 15. And I just, oh God, I look back, I was probably so bloody awkward. I didn't know what I was doing, but I did. I just started to run it. Somebody just said, he seems to know, he seems to be okay, but I wasn't a cool kid at all. Uh, but that youth club grew from having maybe 15 or 20, 30 kids to, to nearly 200. And I just understood how to have people be engaged and to be feel valued. And then off the back of that, I was awarded a, an award, um, the Riley, the Rotary Youth Leadership Award called RILA. And on that, they basically, uh, oh, they just support pe young people who are doing things in the community. And I got there and I heard a guy speaking and I thought, I just clicked. I was like, I think I could do that. And uh, then also asked a lot of questions and they didn't have good answers for me. So five-day camp of all leadership strategies and they just didn't have a good strategy. They just didn't, couldn't help me. I said, look, I've got 200 kids coming on Friday night. If a kid runs away with a ball in the middle of the game, what am I meant to do? What, what do I do? And they just didn't have a good answer. And so I was still stuck. And they said, well, if you work it out, you can come back and talk next year. Um, so I did come back and talk. And the answer is have a second ball ready to go. And well, that's the answer. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then I thought the, the youth club was my thing. I think uh, for a lot of us, we're searching for our medium. Where is it that we, I can be me? And youth club was my best guess. And I was terrible at sport and I, I, I could public speak. I, I remember having a debating class. Oh yeah, there was, it was an English class. And the second half of the year was always the debating or public speaking section. And I went for, always went from a D to an A in the second half of the year. And I remember getting up the front one time and just saying to all these kids, like, you haven't even read the book. Like, why are we even not talking about this? And everybody just got called out and I didn't know. And everyone started to go, God, you know what you're doing up the front? And I had no idea. But, um, and then there was a time it made a conscious decision 
to do it. Um, but it was brutal, mate. Like I, it was brutal having the career I have now. It was so difficult. It didn't exist. It wasn't the career guide. I remember one night, I just, I'm not sure if I mentioned this on your other show, but um, I remember just desperately, desperately trying to find work or, and mum and dad saying, Mark, you're going to have to get a job or something. It doesn't work. And I remember just launching a chair across the backyard <laughs> in tears saying it shouldn't be this hard. And it went for about six years of less than uh, less than a dollar would have earned for sure. It was just brutal. And I because I was trying to invent something that didn't exist. It exists now, um, well and truly. But um, yeah, like I can I can go into more of that. But it just and then you, yeah, and then you just got to start finding works and 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 be valuable. And if you do a good job up the front, then usually you get a second invite. Usually the word gets out and someone else will call you. Yeah, it's a good point. I remember, and I would have spoken to you about this before, but I remember it was probably six months later after that first camp, you were back at our school in the uh, in the hall. And I was like, all right, that's good. The year 12 coordinators know what's going on. They've, they know when they've spotted a yeah. winner. It is interesting, man. Like I, um, It definitely has gotten a lot busier from, from what it sounds like it was now because that was one of the things that I found interesting. Like every man and his dog, Maybe it's just my friendship group. He's he's curious about how to run a how to run a program in a school. I've got a couple of friends who have uh, who have sort of done the same thing, and it's amazing how many options are out there now. Like I've, I I did a little bit of casual teaching in schools up until a few years ago, and and when I was there, even as a casual teacher, there would constantly be like a health and wellness session that the kids were running and like dealing with anxiety. And there's just you know there seems to be hundreds of people attempting to get the ball rolling now in that scene probably because i guess they know there's an industry there but what at the start were you just cold calling and sending emails and just doing your best to say hey i've got a good message yeah i think the reason so many people are doing it is because my computer keeps pinging and can you hear is that coming through on you is it just my headphones are you getting that yeah no it it did come through but it was the first one i'd heard on mute i don't know what's going on it's bloody it's it's bloody apple um let me just just I'll just I'll just close a couple of things so that we're set. Um, yeah, no drama. I think the reason that I think a large reason that there's a lot of people in the industry doing this or trying to do it. I'm not sure if they think there's money there. I think that it's sincerely trying to help. They're they're getting to an age where they realise that they're looking back on their childhood, saying, "Oh, that wasn't that wasn't helpful. I didn't learn what I needed to learn." And then they want to set up a foundation or run a program. And, and I think some people are. Um, truly want to help that age bracket. I don't think everybody's doing it for money, but the challenge there is in this, in, in the challenge at the moment is you can look a certain way and then the school or, or my, for me, corporate audience, the corporate employer has to look at you and try to work out, is that really who you are? And I had a, a person say to me one time, like, um, <laughs> I was talking to them, they hire a lot of people for new corporate conferences and she said, oh, I see everybody's videos, but what I'm trying to work out, will you be like that with my people? Or was that just a perfect day? Um, and so th- that is really difficult now. And um, in the and in, when it started, it was probably even harder. So when I started, printing was expensive. And uh, look how I'm a dinosaur. So what I did is I, I somehow, I must have gone through the phone book and typed up about 250 addresses for, for schools. And then I wrote a letter to the school principal and rather than just doing it on a printer, I came up with a logo and it had three different colors and that was expensive to print back then. Like, so it cost me about 700 bucks. I printed these letters and it said, hello principal, I run these programs, blah, 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 blah. 
and was, I remember the whole family, we, they arrived back from the printer and we were going to fold them and send them out. And then we realized we'd spelt principal wrong. <laughs> oh, no. It's a shit of a word as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we started again. I think, I don't know where the money came from. I don't know what we did. Maybe we just printed the letters again. I don't know what we did. But so we sent them out and I think four people called. And uh, I think some people called me and said, we just really don't, still don't understand what you do. And that was a bit embarrassing. And then I think two called, two hired me. And, and uh, that was pretty much the strike rate for a long time. And oh, I made a lot of mistakes. But, but my intent was always really sincere. And I came with a lot of energy. And, I, and generally, yeah. yeah. Is that a good enough answer? That's a good answer. I was just thinking about how you were saying that people would see the videos and they would go, okay, well, maybe that was just you at your best. It's the same in the comedy scene. I don't know if you remember. I think I might have told you a couple of – 12 months ago when we last spoke that my new love is a stand-up – or four mm. years into my new love is a stand-up comedy scene. And one of the things you, you find out quickly when you want to get a gig at a better room is you'll contact the room runner and they'll go, all right, have you got some clips? And you go, well, yeah, I do, but do you want to see the clips of me bombing? Which happened, <laughs> if yeah. not, not as regularly as they used to, but I got plenty of those. Or you just want to see me where things just work to a T. And they always mean just show me where things work to a T. And yeah. I send those through and I'm like, just in the back of my mind, I'm like, you and I both know there's no guarantee this is going to happen. But, <laughs> but yeah. here's me at my best. And if you're happy to attempt or if you're happy for, uh, you know, for me to come and try and do this, I'll, I'll try and do it again. But uh, it always comes with that asterisk of, hey, there's, there's so many variables as well. The stand-up comedy scene I find dis- different to just presenting in schools. And so I don't know what you find about the corporate scene, but I always found that people are generally fairly respectful, even if they don't necessarily enjoy what it is that you're talking about. They'll sit back and they'll go, oh, it's, that's nice. But what I kind of like about the stand-up scene as well, and I had the same experience as the corporate in the church. Church was worse. I was a youth pastor for a while, and I'd go in there, and if the congregation hated what you were talking about, well, at church, you, you can't be an asshole about it. You have to sit there and smile. But in the comedy scene, you might not even be trying to be an asshole. But if your jokes aren't funny and people aren't laughing, it's pretty, pretty obvious pretty quickly to everyone in the room that you're bombing. Mm. I did <clears throat> I did do comedy for a while. I think you knew that, didn't you? No, yeah. I don't think so. Yeah, I did comedy for a while. And uh, I'm better at what I do now. But uh, because I always could – when I so when I go do a keynote and I – uh, it's funny that I even we talk about motivation. I, I just don't see myself in that category, but I appreciate. I don't this. either, for what it's no, worth. Just no, as I a, know. a clarification. Yeah. When I'm presenting, I am. I'm funny, but I'm not. Oh, that sounds so egotistical, but I'm just having a bloody good time. And if I see something that's funny, I just can't help but say it, right? And so, so it's highly engaging. And then I'd always thought about doing comedy. And so I, I did it and I did my first gig was in New York city um, because somebody had access to, you know, I can get you a gig in New York and it wasn't a good gig. I didn't do well. <laughs> but, and then the second one was at a, um, Oh man, was that a, uh, a, 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 what do you call it? A talent show at, and in, in, in Dandenong. And I got up and I bombed like, <laughs> oh, it was brutal. One of my mates drove me down there. And he knew I'd bombed. It was so bad. I won't go into detail, but I bombed. I remember getting the car, driving home, and swearing that I would never, ever, ever happen that have that happen to me again in my life. Like it was just so painful. And uh, but as I did comedy, did one? It used to be the I think it's still on the Raw Comedy Festival, and yeah, it was interesting yeah. because I did that. And uh, Dave Hughes came up to me afterwards, 
And he said, uh, he's gone, man, you've got a really interesting style. He said, just keep doing that. And it was that very candid, just calling the audience out, going, like, for example, if someone's heckled me from the audience, I'd just be like, mate, you haven't got the balls to get up the front, but you're happy to sit there all pissed up and have a crack. <laughs> and then, yeah, I remember saying, you know, like that, I tend to just call it as it is. And so then I actually had a guy who, who did comedy and he said, he gave me tickets to his show and he said, can you come and watch and give me some feedback? And so I, I did, I went and watched him and I've got a good eye for talent and I can usually pick what the magic ingredient is that would make a change. And I said, could you come and watch one of my show, presentations and tell me, should, you know, what, whether you think it'll transfer into a comedy, comedy stage? And uh, he got the end of it. He goes, are you kidding? Don't do comedy. He's like, he's like, he's like, you're funny as hell. And you went for two hours and they were, you, you were killing them and you got paid a shitload. <laughs> on earth do you want to go and do five minutes in front of Trump? Like, you know, and, and I had this really good sobering moment where I'm like, oh my, you actually, the grass isn't greener. You know, no. do, you, you've actually won. You're doing it. You just don't know you've done it. It's a good point. That's one thing I always say to people is like, if you want to do comedy, don't get involved in it for the money because there's a couple of people who make really, really good money, but I live an hour and a half away from most of the comedy venues. So for me, all it's doing is costing me plenty of petrol money, but it's like, yeah. it's a, I'm a better bloke. I think when I do it, that's interesting though, man, I can imagine you being that kind of bloke who would just call bullshit from the, the front mm. of the room. I reckon hecklers would have been your best friend in, in that sense. And it is interesting. Like I like the, um, I like that balance that you, you spoke about with the, with the more keynote presentations, because I reckon a lot of the time, and I've experienced this through keynotes, I've experienced this in the church world. Um, I've experienced unfortunately the comedy world there's, but, but the, the keynote world is from so many people who seem to be new to it, interested in the information. And when you start making it engaging in the sense that it's a little bit funny as well, it's, it seems to be like a little bit of sugar on top, the cherry on top. So it yeah. is a, a, a and a, a, the paychecks, as we as we've established, are, are far more appealing than what they are in the comedy world. That's for sure. Yeah, it's um really when people when people are buying a keynote, they're really buying a story. That's what fundamentally happens, and they want to you know you climbed Everest and you lost a leg, you know, or you hike, you know you. I don't know, you got lost at sea for seven days and you know, a shark rescued you. Something, they're looking for something. They go, oh, wow, I want to hear that story. And one of the challenges for me is I don't really have a story like that. If I lost a leg, sometimes I'd probably have a bigger profile, although I don't want to be a bigger profile. I actually really like kind of being anonymous. I, I know I've got a small profile and that's fine, uh, which means it's harder to get in. So it means my agent um, always has to sort of sell me and say, listen, you've got to try this guy. It, you know, and they go, oh, well, this is other person that does this. And yeah, and they often hire the other person first. And then the following year, they get me. And I did have to change my story. So if people go to my website, it's um, Dobbo, my nickname Dobbo, dobbo.com.au. There's a video there and it's, they're both still live, but there's a video, uh, like a show reel, like you said, you know, with the best bits of you. Well, there's two. There's one, which I had almost just over a year ago, and it, it didn't convert for work at all. And the feedback was, you just come across very serious. And my agent's like, he's not, he's going to take the piss. Like, you're not going to know what's going to happen next. So we had to update that video and there's a second video there. And we've made, we, we're always trying to flush out the story. Now, because I've been doing this for so long and I've advised so many elite talents, we made that the story that there's hundred, there's over a hundred elite talents that I advise. 
but th- that's really the game in the corporate sector. That it's a, it's the story. And most people have got a 45 minute, very plastic pre-rehearsed formulaic slideshow with some, and then at the end they finish and they go, any questions? And then they become themselves at the end. So when I get up and on myself from the start, or at least I try to be uh, as sincere as I can be, that's usually pretty refreshing. Uh, and it's a bit out of the box, but there's a, also a risk for the, for the organizer because I'm not famous and the story's not as sexy, but once I'm in, I'm usually in for a long time. Like yeah. I continue to work with the company usually. Yeah. What, what does that preparation phase look like for you? Cause it is interesting. I, I noticed that as well. When you get to a Q and a, a lot of people relax a little more. And I also know like the, the, the corporate scene, you've, you might have a particular number of um, keynotes or presentations that you've got pre-prepared um, but, but that writing process is one that I'm fascinated by, especially in the scene that I'm in now. Like when you're coming up with a, a, you know, a particular um, new keynote or a particular new session, have you got little strategies that you use to, to structure it? Like the, the, there's so many interesting ways that people write and prepare um, that it you know, never ceases to amaze me just, the, um, just how, just how, very, how, you know, how many different yeah. variables there are. Yeah, so... I'm not very good at writing things in advance. I, I need to see the audience's face. I, I need to see them change. So I listened to one of your podcasts the other day and I, I got a lot out. I listened to the one about Bert from Bert and I, I got so much out young, of it. Man. Oh yeah. man, I was, my heart was so grateful because I feel like the space that he lives in is a space I lived in for a long time. And then I had kids and they just constantly dragged me out of that space. So it was so good to hear him and just remind a part of myself that that, I was like, oh, Mark, that's, that's where you live. What are you doing? Like, you know, how did you lose your way so much? It's not every day, but, you know, you need to, be, you need to make more of an effort once you've got kids because you, you're it's a con- constantly, uh, as a parent, you have to be so selfless. Then I also listened to one of the other um, ones you did on um, feedback from, uh, yeah, social media feedback or something, and it was bloody I, – I was, I was laughing out loud. I couldn't believe how funny you were. <laughs> and in the second half of it, I could see you kind of rifting, almost trying content. And I thought it was sensational. I find I can't ever write like that, but I know there's other people that are very good at writing like that and then they test them. I tend to discover things when somebody asks me a question. I then can quickly bring up the answer, but I wouldn't have known it had I sat down at a computer to try to write it. So when I'm going up the front, no two presentations are the same, but there are common frameworks or stories that I piece together. So if I'm if I am preparing, I'll typically jot down either what drawing I'm going to put on the board because I can just talk to it. So if it's a picture of a triangle with an eagle at the top that's got a story, and and I'll, I'll often jot down what image and therefore and what's the outcome like. What what am I trying to teach them? And then what story I would use and I would tweak the stories. So depending on what audience, if I've got salespeople, it might be a different story to leaders. Might be a different story to you know, a, a, a you know, couple of thousand nurses or whatever, whatever the audience is. So I, I'm very light on my notes. But one of the things that I know is critical, and I think it's really critical for comedy, and I'm not sure comedians focus here enough. Comedy is primarily about observation, but they cannot see – they're trying to work you out first. And unless you've got rapport with the audience, they don't get your humour. So when I get up the front – I know they're trying to work out four things. They're trying to work out, one, do they like me? So I have to tick that box. Two, they're trying to work out, do I know anything? Then they're trying to work out, 
Is it actually applicable or useful to them? And the last one is, do they trust me enough to tell me their actual problem? So that's when I'm designing it, I'm trying to work through those as quickly as possible. Now, I can often have all those boxes ticked in just a couple of minutes. Not always, but generally I can. And that really disarms people because they're like, holy shit, this is game on. This guy's not fucking around. We're doing this, you know, and, and it's game on. And, and I think for most um, I think that's if any presenter needs to put their time into the rapport with the audience. The killer is when someone starts, you know, first a little bit about me or when I was asked to do this presentation, no one gives a fuck about you. Like they just <laughs> don't give a shit. has to be about them. Mm. So yeah, that's, um, that's, you know, that's roughly how I, I think it through. Yeah. What's the, what's the process for building rapport? I guess it changes from, from audience to audience, but if you got, little things that uh, once you recognize in an audience, you know, you've got them or is there something that you do or a number of things that you do? Um, what you're trying to do is you're trying to have the audience say yes in their head at least three times. So when I say to people, you're trying to work out if you like me, they just said yes. And then I, and you're trying to work out if I know anything, they're like, yeah. And then try to work out if it's useful for you, they're yeah. And again, you try to work out if you trust me enough to tell me. They're like, yeah, I just got four. I'm done. I'm in. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, great comedians are uh, like, there's a, there's a, oh, I can't remember who it was years ago, but this, there was a comedy show and everybody had to walk past this big green plant. And eventually one of the comedians just like said, what the fuck is with the plant? Who put that there? As soon as he came out the front and everyone's pissing themselves because everybody's looking at this damn plant going, what did they put it there for? But the comedians were just walking past it, not commenting. But the whole room was thinking about it. So you just got to take something that everybody's thinking about. So if you get in a bar and it's a sticky floor, you're like, hey, sticky floor, huh? And, yeah. And that's it. And they're like, yeah. Yeah. That's it. That is, that is interesting. It's amazing how many how many bombs start with, well, I guess it's the constant, and you'd know this from the couple of shows that you've done, but just to stick to the comedy scene, it's amazing how many variables go into a, a night being good. Like I always say that, I try and explain to my wife, when, uh, when I get home from a gig and she'll go, how'd you go? And I go, well, I mean, like some nights it's really easy. Some nights you're like, I killed. Like I had an amazing night. It was like one of the best. Then other nights you're like, there's a weird vibe in the room. There was something off. Um, Like the energy was low. There was the way that it was arranged was strange. I was being heckled by people's cutlery because they were trying to eat their meal. They had no idea that comedy was taking place there. It's just always say that if you walked into a room where a bar fight had just taken place, like it's going to be hard to go in there and be funny because the atmosphere is just not up for laughing. And uh, that's one thing I noticed, like in a room like that, I, I find the rapport building the hardest part because it's like you're getting up there and you address the, <laughs> the fact that half the people in the room don't really want to be there. They didn't realise that open mic comedy was about to start. And then yeah. here you are just interrupting their meal as they're trying to have fun with their family. Yeah, that's true. And it then it comes down to how quickly you can acknowledge or, or work out where they're at and what, what's their – if they're sitting there thinking, hang on, I just came out for dinner with my friends. I didn't expect there to be comedy on. And if that's what they're thinking, if you can say that, then they're like, yeah, mate, that's right. And you're, you're engaged, you're connected. Uh, so what I'm also trying to work out, because I still have those, and I guess as I've become more experienced, I can sort of tell a client what I'm not prepared to do. So, for example, I don't, I don't ever MC, and I don't do after dinners um, because after dinner they're really wanting it to be funny. And I – am funny but it's a different kind of thing it's like i've seen i've seen people who just kill it after dinner i'm like oh, that's not me it's i'm much better in a workshop style I've got a couple of hours i can really engage with people uh i'm always trying to work out okay did i bomb 
because it was my fault or it was basically a messed up situation where it was just, it was not fertile soil. And I see a lot of speakers through the years blame the audience and I, and I look at it and no, 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 mate, you were actually just crap um, <laughs> on the audience. And it's really important to try to work, to, to be told a very accurate mirror up to yourself to try to work it out. Um, one of the things that I notice I do do, and I didn't know we were going to be talking about this, so I'm being as honest as I can, so I hope it doesn't come across like arrogant, but if you'd, someone asked me the question, I'm like, this is my answer, is that when I get up the front, I'm going to win. I, I've made that decision. It's not hope. There's not one ounce of hope in me. So if I get grief from the floor, they will lose. And it, not, not as in uh, I'm better than you, but I'm going to lead you to a better place no matter what. Like we're going to laugh. And I did a function for a bunch of um, sales reps about four years ago. And I had multiple briefing calls with the client. And then just as I'm about to go on stage, the guy said to me, oh, by the way, just so you know, no one's ever finished their presentation to these guys before. So if you don't finish it, it's okay. And I looked at him and said, you don't think you could have mentioned that a bit earlier? <laughs> Seriously. So then I get up there and I wouldn't even even had the first, first few words out of my mouth and they were after me. And they were huge, physically big guys, huge egos, and they just went after me and started throwing questions at me. And they were like, so what do you know about a business? What have they told you? How, what, what kind of brief? Like, do you want to know anything about this industry? And really the game in that situation is who reacts to who? So power is who reacts to who. So when they're throwing a question at me, I've got to respond. Well, then they control it. So I can't afford to answer those questions. So usually I just yawn. I come like as if I'm like, and I just wait. And, and, and I've also got to make sure that when I do speak, it's, it's highly valuable right away. And that's really the more you understand your audience, the more you can say something that's highly valuable. So if it's a comedy thing, it might be like, hey, it takes a long time to get a drink or, oh, this gig's got a wanker in the front row too. And like the wanker in the front row is the same as the plant that everybody's trying to walk past. Everybody's thinking it. You step out, they go, oh, you oh. hope he doesn't get hammered by the guy in the front. Well, if I got up front, then I would do this. If I got up the front and someone's a dickhead, I would just go after him before. I'll be the first thing I say. I go, hey, dickhead, yeah. how are we doing today? Do you want to play? <laughs> I'm like, game on, let's go. That's good. And he'll go yeah. to his mouth and I'll, and I'll be like, sorry, mate, I'm just getting a drink. I'll be with you in a second. I was like, that's yeah. not very interesting. How long does it take for a comeback? And I would just fucking destroy him. But I wouldn't be destroying him because I want to make him small. It'd be fun. But I'll go, mate, if you want to play, I've done this 10,000 times. Yeah. But, I, but back to that point, like, oh, there's no hope in me. It's going to happen. But that's largely because I've got the skill so I can execute it. I know where to put the effort. I might lose mm -hmm. my composure in the process, but the audience won't know. Um, but I, I think that's the case with a lot of people that are very good at something. Oh, that sounds so egotistical. It's certainly not my intent, but when someone's good at something, they just go, I'm just going to do it. It's like, I'm going to eat dinner. I'm going to drive to the petrol station. It's just, there's not, I hope I get to the petrol station. I'm just doing it because I know how. And I, I think that what everyone's trying to do with their skill is get to a point where they just know how to execute. Man, it makes so, it doesn't sound arrogant to me at all. It makes so much sense. As a bloke who spent, you know, a fair bit of time on stage myself, I, I know you need to have that attitude because it's also like the flip side of that. I try and do a little review. I, I'll, I'll set a couple of goals or at least one goal before I get on stage. Um, like a lot of the time I lean on self-deprecation in the comedy world. I'll get up there and I find it funny sometimes. But there's a line between, all right, self-deprecating, that's a funny observation, and then Oh, far this guy, this guy hates himself. <laughs> like, yeah. and a number of times, better comedians <laughs> than me have got down there, like, oi, 
just limit the self-deprecation to one in a five-minute set because it's too much. And you can feel it sometimes. Um, where was I going yeah. with that? That self-deprecation. Oh, yeah, but the flip side of that is when you get up on stage with the the attitude that, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to win. Like it's just a – I like that idea because then regardless of what comes up in the environment, in that room, on that night, it's like, okay, it's not – it might be surprising in the sense that you weren't anticipating it, but your mindset's already there as a, all right, well, this is just it's who I am. It's what I'm here to deal with. I've already figured that out. Just save you that one extra step. What you said then is right. It's who I am. So if you think about a lawyer, they lawyer, they, they study law, then they practice law, and then they're a lawyer. So like when I'm up the front, I'm the real deal. So I, I'm not in a practice mode anymore. And it's, a, it's nice in the later half of life to have that. And it doesn't mean that I will win every time I, I tend to have a good a much better success rate now but what i've got is still a reverence for the task every time i, I never i might have won in front of ten thousand audiences but this one's new and and i really respect that and i do still do the work every time the other thing is that when i say win some people hear that means that the audience loses and it's not actually what it means it, it means that i'm going to win on my objective to get all of you to a place that makes you happier. So even when I go in as a, as a presenter and I'm helping someone work out how to uh, hit targets, close deals, lead their people, scale their business, I'm, I'm looking for them to be happier. It's just that business is the, is the medium. It's like athletes. It was sport was the medium about how we work out, to, how we find our happiness. That's my, still my agenda. And I'm very open about that. I'll say to audiences, just say they sell pharmaceutical products or like I've, I don't know, alcohol or something. I go, guys, I couldn't give a shit about what you sell. I just don't give a shit. I'm yeah. telling them outright and they'll laugh. And I go, <laughs> if that's what's important to you, I'm happy to help you do it. So I'm not being disrespectful. But my, when I came here, it's not because I came here because, oh, my God, let's sell some product. But I do come here thinking, I wonder how I can help these people enjoy whatever they're doing and they'll be nicer to their kids and their families. It just seems like a good thing to do. It's just we have to get paid in the process somehow. Yeah. So that's your guiding principle is that finding happiness is essentially what you're trying to cultivate, whether you work with an athlete, a corporate, just someone else in that scene. Yeah, it is. Because I think we're all happy when we deliver on what we're capable of mm -hmm. and, and it feels good. It's, 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 I feel good when they're happy. I feel good that I made them happy. Like there's an example I often use where if I want to be rich, if I pick up 50 cents, I'm not going to be rich. But if I give a kid 50 cents, I feel rich because mm. it lights them up. So it's, it's, I win too when the audience wins. We all win. Yeah, it's such a good point, man. I heard Mike Tyson quote something around that the other day. He was speaking about one thing you learned that back in the day he thought winning made, his ha winning made him happy. And he goes, yeah, it makes you happy for a moment, but, but giving to him is, is what sort of brings fuel to his fire, which I thought was interesting. And you mentioned the latter part of life. Like I think he might be, he must be early 50s, mid 50s now. And it's, yeah. it's crazy to see a bloke like Iron Mike soften up a little bit and start to make yeah. observations mm -hmm. like that. But Dobbo, one thing you said, which I, I thought was interesting, probably because I relate so much to it right now, is uh, just referring to your kid, kids. Yeah, kids, two children. Yep. You got Ollie kids. and so Jack. You got an Ollie, do you? Ollie, Ollie, Holly. Ollie, Matt, Holly. Holly, Holly, H-O-L-L-Y is three and Jack's 15, 16 months, yeah. Yeah, awesome, man. Well, we've got we've got a two-year-old and we've got another one due next week. So when you said you were coming on the podcast, I was like, please be available this week because I might have dad duties calling real. But, it's man, it's amazing. Like you you 
spoke about it beautifully before. You mentioned it beautifully when you were saying that, like that Burke Gershita interview, that's where you live, that mindset, that attitude, that appreciated appreciation and gratitude for life is is where you live and i i feel a lot of the time or i i think that's where i live as well but um and i'm pretty sure my wife would back me up with this the last couple of years it's amazing how quickly a little kid can take you away from not your core values in a in a bad way but amazing how much just that selflessness that's required to try and keep Mm -hmm. a kid alive alive and raise them well turns your attention away from you and the things that sort of help you flourish uh, I often find that the last couple of years, it's like, all right, well, am, am I a prick or am I just not handling the stresses of this new role very well? And I think it's a combination of both of those things. Yeah. Um, so it's a, a, and it's become a really interesting conversation to me because no one warned me about this when you have kids. They go, yeah, you'll be busy. But no one said that, yeah, but you'll also, you'll have seven minutes for yourself each day. And that's in between, you know, washing up dirty nappies and putting your kid to bed. And it's like, well, what? What, what growth happens in that seven minutes? And I've been trying to navigate this mindset a little bit and, uh, you know, change the way I approach, I guess, self-development, but it's been a, a bit of a rocky kind of a venture. Brutal. adventure. I think it's a really important conversation and I'm trying to be as open about it as possible. And I don't know if I've spoken in a public forum about it. Um, being a dad is really hard. It's really, really hard. And like, I love my kids and, I'm a very involved dad and I think that's what is hard. I was at a, a function recently and a couple of boys came and joined the second half and I said, we're just at the bar and I said to the guy, oh, like um, oh, you got kids as well. And uh, he said, yeah, and he listed the ages and I said, oh, it's tough. He goes, yeah, it is. It's really hard. It's really hard. And he says, well, hang on, no, wait a second. It's hard for my wife. And I was like, you asshole. Like he, he was there, like I was out having a drink with them at the time, but I was leaving in a 20 minutes because I want to be home for bedtime and it's, it's hard putting the kids down. Like, and we got kids that like our daughter's three, she, she sets the table and clears the table, right? Like, so she participates, but it's just fundamentally hard. He's like rounding up sheep, mm-hmm. and especially if someone's sick and our son has been, and he's okay, but he, <clears throat> he's okay, but he has been, he has been crooking. And it was quite clear that he was just being a dad at a distance and oh, I'm like, oh, so that doesn't help me. But, um, and then I had another friend say to me, um, he goes, oh, you really must miss just going out for dinner with Broner and just spending time together. I said, mate, I miss having a shit on my own. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm banging on the door and like coming in. <laughs> no, it's brutal. But I, I think this is a really important conversation. And I'm very lucky that I've got mates that are emotionally literate and happy to talk about this stuff. Um, and I was broken about two weeks ago. I was just broken. And I, I was talking to a good friend of mine, Chad. And um, I've known Chad since I was 21 and, and he's an American. We chat once a, once a month, just for 20 minutes. That's all we can fit in, but it works. And I was, uh, I was, I was in a hole. I was like, I, I just yelled at the kids again, which I hate doing. And I just cracked. And then Jack was screaming. I cannot think when he yells. I just cannot think when Holly cried, I could think when Jack cries, I could, I can't think. And also because the kids, had been sick. I kept on getting sick. I've been sick for bloody months. And it was interesting because they were all able to, it was good because they didn't give me any advice. They just go, yeah, it's shit. And that's all I actually needed because if they gave me advice, it would be like, oh, there's a way through it. But they were saying, no, there's no way through it. It's just fundamentally really difficult. Mm. And, uh, and it was interesting because two of my mates, they are fit and invincible. They said, oh yeah, when I, when I had kids, I was just sick all the time. 
And I'm like, oh, were you? And because I thought something had happened to me that I was going to be just sick forever. I thought, what is, what is this? And, uh, and especially with the second one, um, you know, I do, there is a study that, clear study that says you know, when you have kids, your happiness goes down for five years. And I do admit, I count down the days. <laughs> like it's a five-year mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not that I don't love my kids and, I'm, and I don't want to be pessimistic, but it is just so difficult and selfless that it's um, – and we've got kids that are pretty functional, you know, so it's interesting that you say that. And even I got a bit annoyed the other day when I was listening to your podcast and you said, I spent, roughly tried to spend an hour with Charlie, an hour with my wife, and then three hours doing something else. And then you said, he went for a long walk for a cafe. It's like, how the fuck did he fit that in? Because <laughs> It would have been a daycare day. It would have been a daycare be, day. It <laughs> And I'm like, no, you got to tell them the truth too. It's like impossible. Oh, yeah, Dobbo. No, I, I don't know what I was going on about there. It had to have been a daycare day because I definitely don't feel like that's my norm. In fact, maybe I was – one of the things that I've been finding hilarious at the moment, me and Jesse, my wife, we laugh at together, is I used to be obsessed with – and I still appreciate it, but I used to love trying to just figure out what's that perfect morning routine, what's a nice morning routine to get up. And I was watching – there's this, this chick I, uh, on, on YouTube and I do a bit of yoga on there. And the other day it was, uh, she was just taking us through uh, a typical day in her life. She must be like 25 or 26. And uh, she woke, so the, it was a vlog. She woke up and she goes, I like to start my day. I do a little bit of yoga in my bed. I'll open my journal and I'll write down my thoughts for the day, my plans for the day and what I'm grateful for. So then I like to get up and I'll have a smoothie and a green juice and then I'll go for a walk and I'm like, you don't have kids. No way. <laughs> because my day starts with my kid yelling because he's woken up. He's yeah. shat his pants and it's leaked out his yeah. nappy. It's yeah. coming out his foot. I'm on dad duty that morning in the sense of Jesse's sleeping day. It's just uh, my morning routines have taken a whack. If you look at the start of my day at the moment, you go, oh, okay, this guy's not necessarily that interested in like health and wellness because all he's doing is just cleaning shit up from every, like, I don't even know how that pot is still out. It's just, there's so many factors that it's oh. interesting that you say um, that happiness does decline. For a certain extent, because you feel bad saying that, because obviously it's the greatest, it's the greatest gift I've ever had. I would never ever substitute my, well, I say my kids now, because I got one coming in a week and a half, but I would never substitute that for for anything. And yet, in saying all of that, it's it's probably one of the biggest challenges as challenges that I've I've personally faced. And I, I think I think it's because I'm trying to be as hands on as possible as well. I, I really respect that about about you. Like I, I want to be a real hands on dad and be sort of a, a really positive guiding figure in his mm -hmm. life and, and that requires time but man it's interesting that it's uh people give you people give you like a soft warning they're like oh like mm -hmm. i said to i said to my dad's mate the other day yeah uh, i just met him and he goes oh what's going on in your world mate? i said we're about to have our second kid and he goes oh mate commiserations <laughs> and uh, I, it sounded um, horrible yeah. but i'm like this guy's got kids he he gets yeah. that i'm about to go i'm about to go through the fire so I appreciate you talking openly about this, man. But have you got – I know you just said that it's not necessarily mm. something that you're looking for strategies to navigate your way through. You just need that confidence or that comfort in the fact that it is hard. But yeah. how, how do you deal with it? I appreciate you being so open about the fact it's not, oh, not the sunshine no. and rainbows. I don't know if my wife would think, say that I do. My, my wife and I um, got a really awesome relationship. I think, I think some things people need to know is that you need to know it's hard because you it, it gets so your relationship gets so strained. Yes. And you need to know that that's okay. Yeah. 
and uh, I saw a star. I didn't, we always say to our friends when they say they read an article, we go, did you read the article or just the headline? And uh, so I saw the headline and maybe the first couple of lines. <laughs> yeah. this one, and it, it was talking about how when you're stressed, uh, when you're truly stressed, that you can only see the negative in your partner. And it's true. We definitely had that for a long time. And it was really, really hard. And, and I, and the, I think there were times before we got married where we hadn't, we just started our relationship. We would have a fight and it could last for days, the tension, and we've got it down. So it lasts for 20 minutes, an hour, worst case overnight, worst case. And a lot of that is just really presuming the best intention of the other person trying to work out like, how, how do I find a way to have this resolved quickly and to be loving and realize it probably is my fault somehow. I just can't see it. Uh, but even though we're really strained sometimes, we're really, we're, we're doing our best not to blame the other person. Even though there's times when Brian wants to put my head through a window, like, and vice versa, where you just go, I, oh, I love you, but why do I want to kill you? I just think it's really important for, for couples to know that that kind of strain is, is part of the process because you're just so tired. And the moment you think you get to rest, you you know, some baby screams or they throw up all over you or there's some something else to do with the bin truck pulls up and you're like, you're kidding me. So a part of it is just really knowing that you're going to be sad. I think that's really important. I haven't managed, you know, they say get time for yourself and all that. I haven't managed to do that. If I get time for myself, that means that Brian's got two kids. So that doesn't seem like a win at all. Um, you know, sleep's great, but you just don't really have that luxury of, of sleep, frankly. Um, I, I did have a friend say to me once, we had quite a few miscarriages before we had kids and uh, it was tough and it was really tough. And he said, you know, Dobbo, it's okay to buy happiness. And uh, I was like, wow, yeah. Like I think all my personal development was, I'm, you know, I'm resilient and resourceful and, you know, I don't need a, a crutch of alcohol or shopping or whatever. But, you know, Brian and I did just, we had, we had, we didn't have kids then, so we had time, but we just went shopping and we probably just blew a grand on just for the sake of it. And so I, I did, I have realized that um, sometimes you just realize that you're doing this to cope and that's okay. It, it doesn't mean that it's a pattern. Um, I, I think, the, uh, I think there's a few things that I'm always doing for Brona, like, and I think for, um, Classic in your classic heterosexual relationship is important. Sometimes when you work all week, you get to the weekend and you think, oh, I'll do mow the lawn or I'll, you know, I sometimes play golf or they go, oh, I'm going to get some extra work done to get on top of things. Then the weekend doesn't look any different for your partner because mm. now they've still got the kids. And that doesn't work. You have to allocate the weekend for the weekend. It has to be that because otherwise your partner has no contrast and the whole ship sinks. Um, I also think that if you're going to, if you say to your partner, you'll be home at five, then you've got to be home at five. You can't be five past five. It really, really matters to your mentality for both parties. And the other thing is, I think you just got to resource things that are hard. So we had a little win. This is ridiculous, but it was such a cool win and it continues to be. Kids just throw shit all over the floor when they're eating. Like they launch it and they're just, they're learning sensory stuff. So they want to, like they're trying to, and they just, Drop it off the edge. And, oh, so dude. Like, 
Oh, dude, I wish my wife was listening to this right now because our kids doing the same thing, and I've I've never wanted to learn the triangle choke or hold so bad. But no. I feel like you're about to give more helpful there's, advice. There's, there's two tips. The first thing is the child needs to know what to do with it instead, and so we just put a second bowl there, and they just fill up the second bowl. It it was amazing. Instead of throwing it, it on the floor, yeah, they just want to do something with it. So we yeah. just go, oh yeah, put it over here. And the second bowl is like if they're in the high chair, the bowl could be on the table or it could be still on the high chair somewhere else. But the idea that they're, they're moving it and putting it somewhere is enough. So that was amazing. But the second thing, we just got a dustpan and brush that you use while you're standing up, a tall one for twelve ninety nine from Kmart. That's a good, that's a good advice. We were like, why did we not get this two years ago? That's, that's such good advice. It's because getting it on the floor is such a pain in the ass. <laughs> just over it. And then if you leave it there too long, it just cakes up and it's solid. And it's never coming off. So oh, we are always trying to look at what resource do we need? And often I think that people think, you know, we all go, oh, no, I've got it covered. But it's really worth listening to other people think, well, what did you do? Like, and saying, what's the bane of your life? Has someone else got a solution here? Um, so, like, that's it in a nutshell. There's probably some other things, but that's what comes to mind at first. Um, but I, I am open about it. And, and you know, when I said before, that, you know, that's the space I live in. I think it's really important people know I don't live in there. It's who I am. And I have lived there, but I haven't been at all. I've just been, and I don't feel like the positive guy. I feel like the guy that just vents and bitches about life at the moment. I don't feel positive or uplifting at all. Um, but sometimes people like that, but I don't feel like it. And I've just been really concerned. Have I truly lost my joy or zest? And I haven't. Like our kids slept through recently. They're just starting to sleep through again. And I'm like, I feel like a king. Like, oh my God. I've got six hours, a couple of nights in a row. I feel like a king, dude. We um we caught up with with one of my wife's good friends the other day. She's got a she's got a twelve year old girl and a and an eight. I think he's like eight, seven or eight. And I remember her saying about four years ago or five years ago, she's like, "Oh, it's so nice that I'm I'm starting to feel like myself again." And I was like, "Oh, what do you what do you mean starting to feel like yourself again?" She's like, "Dude, the first four or five years of your kid's life." And I think it was very similar to what you and I are talking about now. Just that that constant commitment that a kid requires in order to be alive. Uh, it can be so draining. She's like, I just, I felt drained. I felt exhausted. I felt grumpy. I felt miserable. Um, and to come to, to get them to an age where they're a little bit more, you know, they still require attention, but they can go to the toilet by themselves. They can have a shower by themselves. They can get their breakfast organized. She goes, it's just a massive breath of fresh air. And even today, um, daycare day, as I mentioned, just for clarification, um, Jesse and I, we went down for a coffee at Ket Baker out here in, in Ocean Grove. And uh, when we were sitting there, I said to her, I was like, I just, I'm listening to a book at the moment where uh, he's a, a Franciscan priest and he's talking about just the, the different stages of a person's health development and, you know, some signs that you, you might be in a, a little bit of a downer kind of a phase he spoke about how you're you know you, you notice in a downer phase a lot of the time your, your mind feels as though it's closed up your heart feels as though it's closed up and your skin feels a little bit more leather and I've noticed even in the way that I joke I'm like it's a bit more cynical and a bit more like Jessie said to me a while ago she's like you, you've always been so agreeable it's amazing to see the last couple of years you just like mm. sort of call that bullshit where you see it and I'm like, I'm, I'm sort of glad, like I took it as a compliment. I'm glad that I'm a bit more like that. But also I know that some of that is just, uh, some of that is just a, a frustration maybe with the period, like just to echo what you've already said. I, I definitely feel the, the same way in, in so many respects. And mm. the thing I'm trying to navigate, and <clears throat> um, it sounds like you've sort of thought about this a, a bit as well, is I, 
I'm so I'm so put off by that grumpy old man, like that stereotype of a grumpy old man who's just become cynical with life. That I think I have to cut myself some slack sometimes because I'll sit back and I'm like, crap, am I am I just becoming that, or am I in a really intense part of life? And it's not always just one or the other for me. I think sometimes I've got to be cautious that I'm not just leaning on cynicism. But yeah. the other side of it's true as well, which which you acknowledge, which I, I appreciate, is is the fact that we're just in a just in an intense kind of a phase. Mm. And with COVID too, we had a perfect storm. Our child was born right before the uh, second lockdown. Something mum and dad got to see him right before we went into this full lockdown. And so we lost all our um, – we lived, we were in a fairly new area, so we didn't have a social network locally. And all the mother's groups that we could have been part of and similar all just got disbanded. And so you had no friends. And what I realised during all the lockdown periods is that what we missed the most is we didn't laugh. We stopped laughing. And so that's the fuel. So it's a particularly hard time and I'm just worn out. As a, as, a, as a bloke, I keep getting asked to be things that I'm not. And like I'm asked to put things into Tupperware containers and I hate that. And, <laughs> and I'm asked to negotiate, although I don't negotiate. We don't negotiate with terrorists. So I do not negotiate with my daughter. But sometimes <laughs> you're just begging her to be on the goddamn toilet, right? Yeah. And so I, I'm, I'm worn out and I love the films um, Daddy's Home, the, the Daddy's Home 1 and 2. You haven't seen them? Have you seen those? Are they like from the 90s maybe? No, I no, no. I feel like they're, I've heard the title. but They're um, Will Farrell, and the, oh, the second no. one's a Christmas movie. They're absolute must-see, but he talks about dads just like, we just, we just take shit. That's what we do. We just and, you, and you're like, yeah, you do. You keep you, you take a beating because you're constantly being asked to be something you're not. And it's not that you don't want to be that, but it's not in our nature. Like, like I can go out in the garden and I can work all day in the rain. I can pick up a dead rat if I had to. I can dig out the sewer if I had to, and I'm fine. And I say to Brona, come outside and do this with me. And she's like, you know, she tries, but she's like got seven minutes in her, all right? But then I go inside and I'm doing the home stuff and I just can't do it. So it's, and, but I try. And so I'm constantly being asked to be something I'm not. And I had two really unique experiences when we had the kids. I remember driving across the Westgate Bridge, coming home one night, and I was just tired and narky. And I had this aha moment where I suddenly had no more time for any friends that were pretending to be my friend. Where, you know, some people you text them, they text you right back. And there's other people you text them and it's like, oh, sorry, I didn't get, never got back to you. How was the event? And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm guilty. That's I'm bullshit, guilty. Right? Yeah, I know. Yeah. I need to improve that. I'm glad you said that because all my friends listen to this. We'd be like, Tyce, you can't not acknowledge that you. <laughs> so it's, just, can... it's, just, yeah. it's a courtesy. If you just, and I think people just don't know how to give bad news or they don't know what the answer is. So you've got to solve that. And so anyway, I, I had this at home. I was like, I'm just not putting up anybody who's not my friend anymore. I was just too tired. I didn't have the energy. And then once I had the second child I was driving and I was like, you know what, anybody that any client that gives me any hassle, any grief that is any way at all, just not worth the effort. They're gone. Just, it was like, it switched in me. And, and as a result, my income went through the roof because I also stopped doing things that I didn't, that were low value. And I think that a lot of um, parents know that feeling where I just don't have time. So I have to get it done right now. And when you're young, you've got so much time that sometimes you don't get it done at all. But, but these were the result of fatigue. But then through COVID and other time and other things like, you know, the wars overseas and similar and 
I think there's some serious trouble coming globally, but you do understand how things work and you start to see, oh, that's why my granddad was like that because he'd seen life change so much and he, and, and he'd become tired and miserable and saw us going in an unhealthy direction. And I'm like, I don't want to be that guy. So it was interesting when I listened to Bert the other day and just hearing his gratitude for things, a lot of it really is what you're focusing on. It's, it's what's captured your imagination. And when you're tired, you don't have the resilience to keep an idea out. Um, so they're just things I'm navigating. I'm not, don't think I'm doing a very good job. I'm still, got, I'm still married and I've still got two kids that like me, so I, I might be doing okay. Mm. But um, I just think it's important that we don't romanticize it. Like I've got this book when, I, like, when Holly was born, it was about being a father and all these famous people talking, you know, about being what a father means and all this kind of shit. And it was great. And I'm a little way in and I'm like, I'm not writing that book. I'm writing that I want to take a shit on my own. Seriously. I'll write the forward to it. I'll write I know, the forward. Do, right? I, I agree with everything that Tommy just said. I just want to put a shirt on and, and be confident that that's the shirt I'll leave the house in. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like, cry. I just want to wake up in the morning and, 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 and know that the kids have shit has stayed in the nappy and they don't have oh, to change the entire. I just want so that. I just want to eat avocado off my finger and know it's avocado. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to sit at dinner and sit and have a meal with my daughter without her laying all over me and putting her feet on me. And I just want to not get hit in the balls every two days. Seriously. I cannot believe how many times oh. I get hit in the balls. I'm like, oh. I'm so tired of it. Oh, dude, I'll give you a worse one. We were uh, we were sitting in our lounge room a couple of weeks ago, and my little boy's gone through a phase where he's like every day he's a dog. Like he'll he'll spend ten minutes on the floor going around, "Hey, Dad, I'm a dog." Hey, cool, buddy. Like, <laughs> so I was I was laying down. He barks, he bites, he does everything. I was in my tracky pants. It was seven o'clock at night. I was free balling. My little boy came up to me, and all of a sudden, uh, wife's on the couch. He's on the floor. I'm on the floor. He comes up and and he bites me right on my old fella. And goes, uh, like, without meaning to, like, through mm. the pants, just trying to be a dog. And I go, I go, oh, no, Charlie just bit me on the dick. And Charlie, who doesn't know that many words yet, he comes out with, I bit, like, I bit you on the dick. He did that. And then Jesse goes, babe, you can't do that. And she whacked me. And then he, so I went into the toilet, Dobbo, to, then this part, I'm sorry to all the listeners eating dinner. I went into the toilet just to make sure I was okay. The little, yeah. the little man, he'd drawn blood. He, <laughs> so when people say, I just want to be able to relax on the toilet. I go, how about this one for size? I just, yeah. I just want to not get bit on the dick just once, <laughs> just once for a couple of weeks. It's just, uh, it's just things going on that I just never anticipate. Who knew you were going to get bit on the dick just being a dad? I'm just trying to raise you, mate. Leave me alone. Yeah, yeah and then it chits me with another bird gag. Oh, but it's so great, really, isn't it? I'm like, no, it's fucking not. And so, like, I love them. I love them with all my heart, and those kids know it, and I tell them. Mm. But it reminds me of that story I grew up with as, as the, the magic faraway, as the, the magic, is it the, 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 is the magic giving tree? You know, the giving tree. I think oh, it's just called the giving tree. I don't know it. But it's a kid's book where there's a, a little boy sits under the tree and he gets apples from the tree. And then eventually he says, oh, I need, I don't know, compost or something. It takes the leaves and, he, and then eventually he's like, oh, I need to build a house, you know, and the tree says, I'll take my branches. And then he goes, oh, I need to build something else. I'll take my stump and then or take my trunk. And then eventually he's like, there's just a stump left. He's an old man. He goes, oh, I need, I guess, oh, Tree says, "I got nothing left to give." He says, "I'm just a stump." And he said, "But you can sit if you want." And this old man sits on the tree, and I'm like, "Yeah, that's the parent. The parent is constantly surrendering another part of himself to allow the next." And it's interesting because I was saying to you just before, like, my mum is she's in a real bad way, and it's an interesting um, turning 
the cycles of life where look, I, I don't have a lot of confidence where, where mum's at. Like we could just completely turn around. But at the moment, it's not looking great. And But mum and I, mum and I have said goodbye to each other in a very, you know, and I think it takes it takes a lot of courage to say, have that conversation as candidly as we did. And, and there's a lot of love there. But also I can see now as a parent how much she loves me. And I didn't know that. And now I do. And so I'm much more affectionate towards my mum. I let my mum hug me. I let my mum kiss me because I know that's what I would want to do with my kids. And uh, so it's, it's an interesting awareness that of just, you know, because I do love the kids and I'm prepared to do all this stuff that's difficult. Um, but it's interesting also then seeing, oh, that's, this is the, the, the flaws that I saw, thought I saw in my parents. Why, you know, things you, you might want from them as, as a parent. You, oh, you could have been more like this. You could have been more like that. Now I'm like, no. Nah. Think good on you. He like I totally get whatever you did. It's not like you didn't try. Mm. You know, hundred percent. They they put it all in that they could. And uh, you know, I think that's that. Yeah, that, I remember that giving tree. They always used to read at school, and I thought it was a sheer story. I'm like, oh, I get it now. Oh, yeah, it's a story of my life, man. It's amazing. My dad used to always say to me as a kid, he's like, you never realize how much your parent loves you until you have a kid of your own. And I was like, okay, dad, cool, dad. Let's just go. I just want to go play footy. Like, okay. And now, and now my little man's here, I'm like, oh my gosh. Like I, I didn't quite realize that was, it is, yeah. it's just a, it's an insane experience. Um, mm. Yeah, but both are true, aren't they? It's like, yeah, it's, there's so much love and, and as we've established, it's like mm. you also get bit on the dick from time to time. It's just oh. a, it's a strange correlation. On that one. <laughs> oh, this is, a, uh, it's better. It's more of a visual thing, but I was in the shower with the kids the other day and, uh, Holly does this thing with straight away. She'll just get a cup and put it below my <laughs> willy as a tap because the water runs off it. And I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, so I sort of turn away. And, and it's so bad. And then the other day, I must have just been washing. You know, we just soak up your arms. Uh-huh. I must have just brushed my, my willy and it, it, it swung like a pendulum, you know, a bit. And she looked at it all puzzled like. And then she just whacked it to see it move against <laughs> and forth. I am mortified. I'm dying inside. And then she just goes on and does whatever she's doing. The show. She's moved on. I felt like I was so embarrassed. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. And then I start getting nervous. Like, okay, well, at what age? At yeah. what age does this start to entrench itself as a memory? Like, is my boy going to get to five and go, wait, what? Yeah. What is- Look at the strangest memory. It's so weird. Oh, dude, that's great, Dobbo. But you say that, and the funny thing is, as well, it's like my, my, it's, it's that innocence, really. Like a lady, I took my little man to the pool yesterday, and uh, I was standing in the deep end. And Charlie, he's at that stage now where he can, he can just jump in and he's sort of just learning how to quickly swim to you. And a lady goes to me, it's like, it's, it's just a, it's an incredible amount of trust they have. And I was like, oh, yeah, it it is insane because there's very few people that I would, if I couldn't swim, I don't know one person who would jump in the pool with to save me. I'm, my body weight's too much for my wife to be able to look after me. Mm, it is a strange experience. And it's just um, just that innocence, like whether Beautiful. whether they're whacking you on the wheelie or jumping into a pool, it's like you just don't like – you've just got you've got so much trust that whatever you do is fine. I'm going to look after you. I'm still going to be your yeah. mate at the end of it. It's a, yeah, it's a very uh, a very strange but beautiful experience. Yeah, it is extraordinary. And uh, <clears throat> I definitely now can appreciate that. You know, when I'm talking to an audience, I'm always aware that they were talking about work, but the chances are they're juggling a lot privately. And I actually presume 
that if they've got the young kids, they've got no time. I generally presume that everybody in the audience has got bad debt. They may not, but I, I just sort of take that position. And I also take that position that they're probably, their, their relationship, their romantic relationship is probably under strain. Because most people do just such little work on how do we have a better relationship. Uh, they just do token stuff at best. And, uh, and I do, I start from there when I'm speaking. It's not that I even talk about those issues, but sometimes I'll flag little examples. Um, but I start there to try to understand the audience, like back when we were talking before. And, and now you know, I'm a parent, I can understand the audience a bit differently. And mm. I couldn't before. You know, we had kids later in life, so for a long time there, I wouldn't have understood that aspect of the, of the audience at all, not even remotely. Yeah, man, it's interesting. Dobby, you said something. Uh, said something I was I was interested in hearing about before, and at the risk of because uh, you followed it up with how important your focus is it is on um, you know the way you feel throughout your day. But you said you were curious uh, about the the global situation at the moment, not necessarily super optimistic. Uh, what what makes you say that? <clears throat> I've been saying to my business club for a long time. So I've got these uh, people who run, I guess, small businesses of anywhere between seven hundred k to probably. Two to three million dollar revenue, and we meet every couple of months, and I coach them, and they just pay a nominal fee for, for and I've coached them for years and years. And other people can join, like you can listen to my podcast, and you can learn a bit about it. But I've been saying to this group for a long time, this doesn't stack up. And what I've been meaning is that you can't just keep spending like this. It felt like we were just infinitely, we just infinitely spending. We just everybody. Everybody's getting new cars and new houses and investment properties and they're having iPads and $1,000 watches that connect to their phone and I need a new phone every year. And and I, I kept on – my sister has always said that I'm very good at predicting the future and I look back and I go, yeah, I have. I've always kind of been able to extrapolate with, with what we're doing here. What does this add up to? And uh, I've always thought it. And then I went and read uh, Ray Dalio's book, The Changing World Order. And he's, if those people don't know him, he he's lead, he founded the world's biggest hedge fund, private hedge fund. And he's pretty much on the spectrum. He just creates a formula for everything. And he, instead of just researching uh, economics from the last 100 years, he went back and researched the last 600 years and said, well, what are the patterns to financial cycles? And he started to, he could, he could see that every 75 to 100 years, there was a global conflict and it was kind of predictable. There was a pattern to it. And this really helped me um, be able to articulate what I've been thinking for a long time, but didn't have the knowledge or the words, uh, didn't have the data. Uh, so, yeah, I think that the, I think things. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen, but I think the conflict's just going to get worse and worse. Um, I, th- I think that leaders have just forgotten what how bad war is, and I don't think they give a shit because they're interested in themselves. I think. Uh, We've been very trusting and these people just keep taking advantage of our trust and come higher and higher up the chain until they're in charge for a long time and they change things around so they can stay in charge. And uh, I think that there's not much that we can do except to know what our values are so that we can live by them if things got worse. And I think that you, you want to live inside your means. You want to not have any bad debt. And I think when COVID happened, it hit. Um, our finances are in order. We're by no means rich, but we don't have any, uh, any, we don't have any bad debt. So we did, we could take a hit. We didn't need to, um, yeah, we, if we did lost our income, we were okay. And so that's the sort of thing that we try to move towards and I try to encourage all my businesses that I lead 
to be taking during this time to not being too ambitious with some of their strategic objectives, but to be sure-footed. You can still be aggressive, but as long as it's not putting everything at risk. Um, and also during <clears throat> listening back to a couple of your podcasts and understanding where you stand on the, you know, on some of the, the political things oh, that's happened. Poor leadership. I'm a, loud, I'm a loud mouth. I'm, I'm a loud it's mouth. Great. <laughs> it's great. But uh, we we found that we had um, views that people didn't like, but really we didn't. They invented our views. They had no fucking idea what we thought. They just marginalised us. And uh, and to this day, I really have not said much about it, but people just invented it. But we lost really close friends over yeah. it. Really. And I'm stoked because yeah. it, it cleaned it out. I'm like, well, that's good to know because I won't invest there. Like, I don't know if I've forgiven them yet necessarily, but I'm not whole, but I'm, I'm just not going to invest there. And so I think that you're trying to work out who's truly in your team if things yeah. get strained. And hopefully I'm so wrong. I'd love to be wrong. Wouldn't that be great? Because I don't want to raise kids in a world of conflict. But um, it's an incredible read. It's an incredible book. That's cool, man. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's funny. It's interesting hearing you talk about just watching that <clears throat> that friendship group diminish a little bit. I had the same thing. And, and what's interesting to me is one of my closest friends said to me, a little while ago, he goes, um, he goes, mate, I disagree with half the shit you say, but I'm happy to talk to you about any of it. And yeah. I, I love those conversations. They're the kind of people, oh, we can see things completely differently. In fact, a lot of me and my best mates do. But what I love about my best mates is the fact you can sit down and I go, hey, look, this is where I'm at. And they know I'm not just trying to be a prick or trying to be difficult or, you know, trying to just go away from the norm. <clears throat> and just being able to chat through those ideas and have that conversation. But the flip side of that's also true. I was amazed just watching my, uh, as I said, I was a bit of a loud mouth and I just, I think I was so frustrated the last couple of years and felt like there was nothing that I could do. Like there was, as mm -hmm. you say, people would pigeonhole you and, and just assume they knew where you stood on a certain issue, um, you know, based on one, one idea that you had, you know, he's obviously conservative based on the, the fact he thinks this, mm -hmm. you like, well, maybe on that issue I am, but what, what did my, or what, what made me laugh was, uh, I, I, after a while, I was like, now get stuffed. Everyone else is allowed to tell me their opinion. I'm just going to start chucking out a few of my opinions, though I know they're, they're not yeah. the mainstream, though I know people are going to be upset with me. And just watching my Instagram following just go like this. Yeah. <laughs> like it, was, it was actually my – I would put up some things sometimes and have a little laugh with Jesse. I go, babe, like, give me a number. How many do I lose off this one? Yeah. She's like 13. I was like, oh, 22. And I was like, all right, you win that one. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but but you're, you're, you're very brave, though. When I listen back to some of your stuff, you're – really brave and I commend you for that doing that because uh yeah because there is risk in that and it was a very unstable time and what we discovered was who could handle difference and who could think in fear and there was a lot of people I discovered couldn't do difference and they were in fear they just went to the fetal position and uh there's no courage or and the complete lack of any kind of critical thinking the big one is just difference. Like I've got my friend, uh, Monique, she's a Muslim woman. And up until just recently, she's been wanting her jab since she was 21 or so. And she's just taken it off actually, which is an interesting conversation for another day. But she said, when do I go to a conference and I've got to look for a seat? I might see someone with dreadlocks and I'll sit next to them because I know they can do difference. And uh, she said, I went to a, a conference for a very famous psychologist in the country. And I, as soon as I went in, there was hundreds and hundreds of people. I sat in the front row just near the doors and everybody, the rest of the whole place filled and there were seats all around me. And uh, yeah, like she's like, people can't do difference. And 
Yeah, that's what definitely I found the difference, and and can't nav- can't think with fear. Um, it's quite extraordinary, actually. But it feels like it's been a good clear out. But yeah, I don't I don't think the future is. Um, well, he he says Ray Dalio suggests that there's 15 years of conflict and very difficult times, and there is a small percentage of the population that have the hell of a time, the, the most painful of times. And you know, Ukraine would be going through that right now. But uh, but that's not necessarily the conflict, that, but that would be an example. And then after 15 years, there, there's this long, uh, yeah, this long period of stability and usually prospery, pros, prosper, <laughs> prosper, prosper, where the, the the new rules of how the world order works and everybody gets it and you just get on with it and there don't need to be conflict. Now, we may not all like the rules, who knows what's going to happen, but, uh, you know, the West has definitely been in control for a long time and had the largest influence. There's people been on the receiving end of that that didn't like it. So it just changes. Yeah, the difficult thing, like as you say, about getting older and you're tired and you read about it and like, ah, that doesn't look bright, but I I definitely am am trying to work out how to have a a view that can still allow my children to have an optimistic view. Um, It's not delusional but is enjoyable because how are you going to enjoy life if you're constantly thinking about it? Mm. And we don't have any problems today, but that's okay. That's true. Yeah, it's true. It is true. It's funny, man, isn't it? It's like, uh, and so many of the predictions that I make, not saying anything that you said is going to be wrong or right. I'm just saying that so many of the predictions that I make, the fearful ones don't work out, like don't, don't necessarily eventuate. So Mm. I got to try and just pull myself back into that, um, that attitude of like, all right, we're right. We're okay here and now. All right, what's the next step? Um, there is a, easier there is, said than done. There is a uh, a model too that says, okay, there's some people that are say alarmists or whatever the word is, and they're hoarders and they go and build shelters and stuff. The general lodge. So what I do with my work is I, I collect strategies. I look for the smartest possible approach. Like if I'm buying a car, I'm like, what's the best decision making for buying a car? If I'm or everything, like when I'm trying to work out how to make someone run faster or swim faster, trying to look for the most elegant strategy. In this situation, it is about knowing your values. Truly, what do we value and can we live by those under duress? It's about having your money in order so that you don't have any unnecessary debt. Uh, and the other one is that you, if there was something that, if you want to prepare for a negative future, if there was something that you're going to do now anyway that also would serve that, then you would do that. But you don't have to worry about the other ones. So if you thought you wanted a car you wanted to buy an old car because you always wanted an old car. And it just so happens that also if there's a sun flare or something, the microchip's not going to blow up and therefore it'll still work. And that was something you're always interested in. Then you should do that. Mm. And I'm comfortable with that. Now, I haven't really thought it much of, I haven't got many answers to that except have an extra gas bottle. So if I'm having a barbecue, it doesn't run out. But uh, <laughs> but I think that's a really good model yeah. where my wife and I would talk through, like, oh, things are going to get rough. What do we think? And we're like, oh, well, let's just put that money in that account. And, you know, like I'm not going to give anybody more advice than that. But, yeah, that, that's been a good model for me to try to work out, well, which decisions should I make? Yeah, and it's, it's the one good. that's it's useful either way, whether or not there's good or bad outcomes. Dobbo, I'm, uh, I'm glad to catch up with you again. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you enjoy the rest of the afternoon. I'm glad we took that in the direction that we did. As I said, I, I didn't necessarily come with a, in with a plan of what I wanted to talk to you about because we've had enough conversations now for me to go, okay, I'm very interested in this guy. I know... Uh, you can you can have a good conversation. So I'm glad we just let let the ball went where it go. Uh, that wasn't even an expression. I'm glad we let it just sort of flow. But 
Um, Matt, it was, it was good to hear your thoughts on the, the parenting stuff as well. That was, that was really helpful. I'm, I'm glad you opened up about it because I thought I was just a, a, a prick who wasn't handling the role well. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's why I do it. Like I, I'm actually really private, but there are some things I think I just got to talk about it because uh, I want to help. And uh, I hope yeah. it is uplifting. And to finish on the, the war stuff in the future, it's like, I hope there's not need to be deflating. But, uh, yeah, I, I just think it's it's okay. Like, I've got a friend that close. He says, oh, God, I love my kids. But, geez, I love – I come home from work and then I've got to go from working to playing blocks. And <laughs> that's real hard. And I think we just need to acknowledge it's hard. And as soon as we've said it's hard, then it's sort of out of the system and you can get on with it. I think if we have to pretend or feel bad about it, that uh, – that you know, that's kind of doubling up our pain. It's already difficult, and then we're thinking we shouldn't have these feelings. And the reality is, I'm 49. Blocks don't interest me, so uh, that's okay. So you're 49, huh? Yeah, yeah. you're good at 49, man. Suit you. Thanks, mate. Just in the back awesome. of my head. Every time I see a photo of myself, I'm like, shit. I look like my kid's granddad. Oh, dude, um, don't stress. Right. Don't. Stress. That's why I thought when we first started this conversation, you mentioned the zoom and you could see the wrinkles. I just assumed you were talking about me because <laughs> the amount, <laughs> the amount of Botox clinics I see, I go, ah, I get it. I'm curious. Yeah, my <laughs> wife went to a, a, a care center the other day, and she said, "Oh, I'm thinking about getting to a woman. I think I'm getting Botox." And I would tell my wife, "You're not getting Botox. It's ridiculous." Mm. And the woman said, "No, no, you don't want Botox because it does ABNC, but you just want to use this this cream, and it's like eighty bucks. Fantastic." But she came home and she goes, it feels really good. I think it's because if I'm not going to spend money on Botox, I'm using this cream. So I'm like, okay, we've got to win. And I haven't told her yet, but I'm going to start nicking that cream. Well, if you could just send me the name, that would be greatly appreciated. Oh, yep. And uh, we spon- <laughs> they'll be sponsoring the show next week, folks. <laughs> yeah. uh, mate, and good job on the show, mate. It's, it, I had to listen to a couple of episodes and I really enjoyed it. So uh, you, you're on a winner here. Actually, awesome. you know what your topic is? I realized I read your, your fine print on, you know, what the show is about. And it said things. You do... I had the exact language for this. It's it's observations of life or commentary on life, both funny and deep. Yeah. yeah. That's what this show's about. It's it's observations or commentary on life, both funny and deep. And if you could switch the word life for like living large or something else, but that that's it. It's deep and funny. That's that's unique. Well done. Yeah, thanks, Dobby. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for coming on. All right, I'll leave you to it. See you later, everybody.